Hello, what's up everybody? We are back with another interview with none other than Dr. Mike Israel, one of my favorite people in the fitness world. And I'm joined by my buddy Sotak Andre, who has been on this channel before. And we are going to be talking about steroids. And Dr. Mike is going to tell you everything that he knows about how to use these substances properly. So yeah, if you're curious about how to use these substances in the most responsible way possible, and even what are the pros and cons using these things, or if you just want to hear some philosophical notes about why someone would venture to use something like this in the first place, then you're going to enjoy this episode. Now, of course, this is not in any way a how to use gear guide or anything like that. This is merely a theoretical and informative discussion, which can be useful or simply intellectually interesting to some of you. So I hope you will enjoy this. And once you finish listening to this, you might want to check out Sotak Andre's individual discussion with Mike Israel about the same topic, which they have done a few weeks ago where they were having a more general discussion about steroids themselves and some additional pros and cons, which we may not have touched on in this particular episode. So yeah, enjoy this episode and whatever. So yeah, let's get into it. There we go. We are live. Mike, Abel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so uh, in the first part of this uh, PD discussion, we uh, had a more of a theoretical um, framing. We kind of went over what are the considerations to go through before you start taking something, what are the scenarios you should uh, take uh, steroids or PDs, and what are the scenarios where perhaps you shouldn't. And in this one, we will try to get a bit more uh, practical insofar as we can. Of course, this is not medical advice, and you should not. Uh, you should take this as just some sort of educational uh, content to entertain. Um, but uh, with that said, let's get into it. So uh, I think the first topic we wanted to cover was, uh, let's say that someone starts uh, taking these treaties, and let's say they start uh, with a, a moderate dose, something like 200 milligrams of testosterone or up to 300, for example, and Mike, correct me if that's not moderate or if that's exaggerated. What are the um, results or the uh, gains someone might expect out of uh, that uh, cycle? So what for kind how of strength? Long? I don't know. What's the usual cycle at length? I don't know, 12 weeks, for example? Yeah, like I mean, that? I just don't, I don't think in cycles, but... Um... You know, that's, that's a pretty odd cycle <laughs> because you're essentially taking like a, a boosted version of a TRT dose for 12 weeks. Um, but let's say, you, you know, you take some compounds that average to roughly 500 milligrams per week. Um, let's say over 16 weeks. And let's say you take more of the right ones and less of the wrong ones. There's uh, everything I'm going to say after this is oriented about a bell curve. Um, there's an average response that I can describe to some reasonable extent. And there's, of course, uh, you know, above and below average responses. And these responses are not just above and below average in how good the results are. They're below and above average in how many side effects you get. So with that being said, you know, um, probably the first thing that's going to happen, if especially if you ease into a cycle like this, which is probably recommended, is you'll notice that your maximum recoverable volume seems to be leaving you behind. <laughs> Like, um, and one of the ways you'll notice this is actually your, your, uh, within session MRV starts to rise to the point where, you know, sessions that used to like at the end of a session, you'd be like, Oh my God, like I'm done. Uh, you're going to look around and be like, gee, I can kind of keep going. I don't know. It's supposed to be a hard workout. And I got done a bunch of sets and a bunch of reps and with really good weights, but I feel pretty good. 
Um, the mistake, of course, is to just unregulated fashion, continue to go uh, and train as hard as possible. And most people do that. And most people are stupid. So, um, you know, that's you sort of notice that first. And then what you'll notice over the weeks is that, um, you know, as you go through your progressions, uh, hopefully expanding the number of sets you're doing per uh, session, hopefully putting, uh, you know, a couple kilos on the bar each time, you'll notice that your expected RPEs or RARs, um, if you still progress uh, in the approximate slope that you would when you were natural, is your RPEs, uh, uh, RPEs and RARs just don't rise slash fall the way you think. So let's say you squat uh, 315 pounds for sets of roughly 10 reps with an RAR of three. The next week, uh, you know, you put 320 pounds on the bar and you expect, you know, RAR two to three, and it's an RAR three again. And the next week you go to 325 pounds and you expect an RAR two to one, and it's an RAR four. And you're like, mm -hmm. okay. And then uh, you normally you would deal it after four weeks, but after four weeks, you're like, um, clearly I don't even know what you literally like you sort of have a difficult time remembering what fatigue really feels like. Uh, and you're like, oh, wow, all right? And, of course, again, the stupid thing to do is put another plate on the bar or rip your tendons off your bone. Uh, the funniest story I ever heard was a guy, uh, funny in an interesting sense, uh, a guy ran Tren, and he think he ran it for a month, and he, he went from a max bench of 315 at the beginning of the month to 405 at the end of the month. Wow. Now, cool. that's a great way to get uh, hurt, not hurt, that's a great way to have a, a complete pec evulsion and just ruin your lifting career and appearance forever. So, <laughs> um, but that's sometimes the temptation because of that's how good you feel and essentially the, the drugs elevate your fitness so quickly and um, they help you reduce fatigue so rapidly that your MEV falls, your MRV rises, and now you have this huge adaptive window. Not only is the adaptive window large, but the adaptive magnitude from every session within that window is higher. Um, so uh, one of the interesting things is if you do this sort of in a more proper way, it's not like you feel super different the next day or the next week and you're like, fuck yeah, and you're breaking mirrors in the gym and spitting at people. Um, what is, I suppose those are all personal choices you could attend to if you'd like. But um, what ends up happening is this sort of momentum opens up to where you're like, wow, okay, like, whoa, like I just feel like everything's going super great. Let me comment really quick on the lowering MEV. So the way that I've proxied minimum effective volume before is you go in the gym and you do the least number of sets per body part that takes you to get a robust a pump, like a decent pump, some kind of post-workout soreness or disruption, like the I worked out feeling, and to some extent, some sort of mind-muscle connection and a good perception of real good tension going through the muscle, right? Like, it's going to take you, it's just, it doesn't happen for one set for most things. Like, you never do a set of bicep curls and you're like, boom, huge pump, I'm going to get sore, I felt the tension through the muscle and I felt like I was really worked. You know, that's just not going to happen, right? So what ends up happening is your MEV falls when you start using these uh, supplements, and what that means is this you go into the gym and you're like, all right, I'm going to have to do five sets of leg presses to get a good pump and to get a nice little bit of soreness post-workout and to feel like I really packed something. What's going to happen is you're going to do two sets of leg press and you're going to have like a world-altering pump and you're going to be like, holy crap, <laughs> right? Really? This is it? Like, you know, I, and the thing is because your MRV is also up, you could keep going. So the real intelligent way to approach training with these substances is if you start this kind of 16-week cycle or whatever, start training at a volume lower than you normally would, and then progress for either longer or take slightly bigger jumps. I prefer longer progress. So instead of running a 4-to-1 accumulation to deload paradigm, you might run a 6-to-1 or an 8-to-1 and make the same jumps normally that you would in volume and in intensity every session, but you just get more of these jumps, maybe twice as many. And then you end at an MRV that's way higher than it used to be. So you're not 
because, you know, you want to preserve your joints, you want to preserve your longevity. And listen, ideally, you want to get the most out of the substances for the least amount of work, right? Because, you know, right. anytime you're not at the gym, you're doing other cool stuff. So not only people say like, oh, when you're on drugs, you can train more. They're completely correct. But you can also train less. So why not do both? Start with less and slowly let the flow build you up to more. Interestingly enough, as the drugs accumulate in your system, your MRV rises and rises and rises and rises so that you end up having to sort of catch it, which is a really great thing because it buys you that many more accumulation weeks. And then this brings me to my next point. So after several weeks slash, you know, one or two months of this kind of stuff, especially two months, then you start to notice the actual secondary effects or the, the not just the stimulative effects, but you, the accretions of ability. You look back and you're like, holy shit, I'm way stronger than ever, especially for reps. And you're going to start to see changes in the mirror potentially at this point. You're going to be like, okay, I, I have weighed 80 kilos before, but I sure as hell didn't weigh 80 kilos looking like this. A part mm. of that is the addition of intramuscular body water. Again, depending on the responses, some people have see, everyone sees intramuscular water addition. Some people see a lot of subcutaneous water addition. Some people don't. It is also compound dependent. But uh, you're going to start to just sort of be half pumped all the time. Like you just walk around with a half pump every day of your life. And then when you go to the gym, it's like one and a half times the normal pump. Mm -hmm. So um, not only is this a sign that you're physically accreting contractile tissue, but you also have more intramuscular water, which by the way, is also anabolic because cell swelling is anabolic, but you always sort of look really pumped. And this is when you start to notice like, wow, okay. And if like you got a guy at your gym that just started using, this is one of the things you notice, like he's been using for three months. It was just everything kind of looks swollen sort of all the time. You know, there's not that natty flatness that you see. And, and that's one of the things that you'll notice. And then of course, towards the third month and the fourth month, you'll have just very impressive body composition changes. Uh, and, and that really depends on which way you take your diet, right? So if you stay isocaloric, I think it's not unreasonable in 16 weeks. Uh, if you start at the appropriate time in your developmental career, which is to say seven to 10 years after you've started training and you've milked out a lot of your natural gains, I think the first 16 weeks can see sort of an average gain of five pounds of muscle and concomitant loss of five pounds of fat. And of course, if you are hypercaloric, you can gain maybe seven pounds of muscle and only three pounds of fat. And if you're hypocaloric, you might be able to gain one or two pounds of muscle while losing sort of like seven to nine pounds of fat or something like that. So uh, those are sort of typical results. And that is actual tissue, not fluid, right? And, and so people will say like, yeah, man, I love Anadrol. I get on that shit. I gained 16 pounds. Like, yeah, dickhole, that's 12 pounds of water. Two pounds of God knows what, your liver dying, and then two pounds of muscle maybe. So, and because they're like, yeah, three weeks of Anadrol's got me up to this body weight. And it's like, that's bloat, okay? Um, and, and, and we could get into this further if you guys like, but intelligent use of proper compounds really tries to minimize those effects to give you really solid, really long-term gains. And then we could, of course, get into, uh, you know, blasting and cruising versus coming on and coming off, so on and so forth. But it's one of these things where proper use of anabolics, as far as tissue accretion within like a 16-week time frame at, you know, low to moderate doses, results in what I would describe as really good gains. They're not incredible gains. They're not life and death altering crazy shit. They're not like, oh my God, this is a different person. That you get sometimes from genetic freaks, more often than not from the kitchen sink of farm, which we could get into what I mean by that, but you start using multiple compounds at high doses and or a person started way too early. Like if you put a teenager who's lifted for one year on just what I talked about, but by 500 milligram average for 16 weeks, he's going to grow like a third fucking arm. He's going to put on like 20 kilos or something, but that's fucking stupid because he could have put on 12 kilos, completely drug-free with zero side effects, no bone growth degradation, so on and so forth. So, uh, Interestingly enough, a lot of individuals who do this sort of first cycle, uh, they notice these, let's say they do things right sort of by sheer coincidence or something. What they're going to notice is like they got really good results, but it wasn't this miracle that they were expecting. 
which leads some people to quit drugs, which is great because those people probably aren't for the drugs and drugs not for the people. But it leads some people to be like, all right, clearly I just was not in not enough gear or not in enough gnarly shit <laughs> or not on it for long enough. Um, and then they'll up the ante to try to chase these psychotic gains. And the psychotic gains are available to most people, but it just requires a really gnarly health trade-off and um, pretty much a, a sort of like a very unplanned, <laughs> uh, not a lot of foresight in what you're doing sort of behavior. Right. Uh, Mike, so just to backtrack for one second, um, you know, whenever someone is accusing some other person on Facebook, it's almost becoming a joke in the industry where someone is going to just comment, yeah, the clan and trend is working. Like the only two substances they heard of is clan and trend. But could you just give us some perspective? Like what are sort of the softer drugs that people turn to at first? Like someone who is just starting out or we talked a bit before the call, like people just getting ready for clubbing or something. Sure. And then what are those that are really reserved for the top tier guys that might step on the Mr. Olympia stage? Sure. So you want, you want me to answer this question as what people probably should be doing or what they actually do? Because a lot of the clubbing guys take the hardest drugs because they're just rock stupid. Yeah, maybe what they should do. <laughs> should be doing. Okay, great. <laughs> so I say a lot of clubbing guys take Clan and Trend because they're idiots. Um, mm. What's that guy's name? Z's? No. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you know, my condolences or whatever. But but in all honesty, like, you know what I'm saying? Live by the sword, die by the sword. Um, right. But, um, okay, so uh, I don't think there's anything terribly difficult to argue against with the first exposure to anabolics being through um, low side effect orals. Low side effect mm. orals does not require you to buy needles and look needles in the face because <laughs> it's scary. And um, it doesn't require you to take the drugs for, so like needle-borne substances, unless they're fast acting, which means you have to shoot a lot, like you shoot three times a week, which most people just don't want to do. Um, they're long esters. They take a long time to process. And thus, if you take them for any measurable amount of time at all, you have to take them for a while, months, plural. And that's enough to shut down your uh, HPTA axis. And then you have to do post-cycle therapy and all this other stuff. So a lot of times that's like a big pill to swallow, right? Like PCT is a huge pain in the ass. And um if it's your first go and you're really sort of you sort of morally outlined this, it's legal in the country in which you're living. Let's say you live in the United Kingdom where personal use is legal, right? And you say, okay, I'm, like, I'm going to start and I've thought this through. I've been lifting for 10 years hard. I have just an aspiration to just take this further and I'm not going to cheat at sport and all that other dumb shit people do. Um, a really good starting uh, substance there is something like Oxandrolone, Anavar, right? You jump on, if you're male, you start with 10 to 30 milligrams per day of Anavar. And you take that for one month. If you stop exactly at a month or roughly four weeks, it's not long enough to shut you down in any meaningful sense. Within several weeks, you'll feel like yourself again. Actually, within several days, you'll feel just fine. What it's going to do is it's going to introduce you in the lightest, softest version possible, a miniaturized version of all the positives and the negatives of drugs. You're going to understand how your psychology interacts with it. You're going to understand how your sexuality interacts with it. You're going to understand what kind of side effects you're getting into. You're going to understand what kind of training responses you get what kind of health effects you get because you can do some blood work afterwards and before preferably. And it's really just this, the first tiny little step. I think if you feel weird, you know, the, the half life is like a day and a half or something, or it's really just like a, you know, nine hours or something. Um, but if, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've taken a substance for a couple of weeks, like it's out of your system within several days. So if you start, you start to have an adverse reaction, you feel super weird, you can just stop. And then a couple of days later, you're golden, right? Whereas if like you're eight weeks into a testosterone athlete cycle, you know, you're, you sort of bought the farm. You're kind of like four weeks at least until you start to feel like yourself and then you're shut down, blah, blah, blah. So that's sort of like low-dose oral, Anavar being as Anavar was a designer drug that was literally designed to try to mitigate most of the negatives and leave most of the positives, and it, it does a phenomenal job. It's a fucking hell of a drug. So, um, and it, it's kind of going to give you like, hey, here's a little preview of what's going on. And if you like what you see, and if it's good with you, then you can sort of take the next step, which is probably to um, injectables. 
that are uh, sort of the next choice. And then if you don't like what you see or you love what you see, but like you just don't need any more, like you literally were like, I just want to get super crisp for this photo shoot or super crisp for this like summer and that's it you just take four weeks of animar with a, a very hypocaloric diet you train at high volumes and then gee you know you probably lose like i don't know five kilos of fat right there and gain a kilo or two of muscle and most of that stays with you after so and there's no there's no downside really um and then and that's the deal right and if you you could just keep doing that to like for another like you know give yourself two or three months of washout and then sort of repeat it again as needed um and the long-term health effects are minor super tiny is almost nothing to worry about and if you want the next level, the next level is, um, I'm not a big fan of cycles. I, I think once you start to inject yourself with needle-borne drugs, um, I think you should be committing yourself to something that lasts months and years. Um, uh, I, I actually don't super understand the, the whole idea behind cycles. Like I do a 16-week cycle once a year. Why? <laughs> you know, you're going to lose a lot of the gains anyway. And also, like, it's not if you really want the next level of sort of evolution as far as your physique is concerned, that's, that's a shitty way to go about it. So you know, I, I don't know if this is what I would do, but I think an intelligent approach is if the orals seem to work well for you, then what you do is you essentially start on a, um, a high end replacement dose of testosterone, either via sipionate or an anthate, uh, roughly 200 to 300 milligrams per week. Um, and what you can do is just start on that. And for several months, just be on that. And because it's a very high end replacement dose, it would be essentially equate to having the best testosterone producing genetics ever. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but not much more than that. You're just going to get fucking amazing training for that amount of time. It just it's really solid, solid body composition results. Not so much results, but an amplification of your processes you've already put in motion. Let me mean, let me explain what I mean. Your maintenance phases are, are not going to be super different. You're just going to get really, really strong, much more than usual. But it's not like you're going to burn fat and build muscle at the same time to any crazy extent. But like any cutting phases you do during that time, it's going to be the best cutting phase you've ever done. Any massing phases are just going to be like, holy shit, like I put on some serious muscle and just not nearly as much fat as I expected. You still put on fat, but it's going to be like, wow, this is going super well. And then uh, per medical, you know, guidance and per, you know, being very responsible at getting blood work and all the stuff. What do they call it in the UK? Bloods. Get your fucking bloods done. Hey. Um, <laughs> so per all that stuff being good and, and taking necessary precautions, watching your blood pressure, so on and so forth. If you choose to take things to the next level, then what you probably want to do is stay at two to 300 tests and add what was, was termed roughly as an anabolic agent, an anabolic injectable drug on top of that. The two that come to mind immediately are um, uh, Primo, Primobolin, and master honors, otherwise known as drostanolone and anthate. Um, so Primo is relatively expensive, but I don't understand why people try to save money on things that are shooting into their bodies. So <laughs> I just like, oh, it's too expensive. Like, well, maybe you just not put things in the, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, you show up to an MRI machine because you think you have kidney cancer, and you're like, how much is this MRI? And they're like, 600 bucks. You're like, that's too much. You're like, sweet, you just have cancer. Like, I don't know what to tell you. So so if, if you're going to be doing it, you might as well pay the money. And it's not like, it's not exorbitantly expensive at all. Um, uh, and then um, probably cheaper in most cases, but in, in, in very effective, but with some more side effects is uh, Masteron. And these drugs basically are engineered, especially Primobolin, which is a fucking miracle drug, um, is again an engineered substance. It was not designed in someone's basement. It was designed by Big Pharma back in the, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, it was designed to be uh, a version of the testosterone molecule modified to minimize side effects and retain as many of the positive effects as possible. So uh, what you do at that point is you take your testosterone dosage and you add that much primobolin or masteron on top of it. So now two to 300 testosterone, two to 300 primo and or um, uh, masteron, and then you run that for another several months. And the results will be better in every single way you can imagine, but with not nearly the side effects that you would expect if you just doubled your testosterone dosage. So from then on, the template is always keep test roughly at two to 300 and then stack as needed for uh, cutting phases or massing phases. You stack more or less of 
these, uh, you know, uh, uh, Masteron and or Primo, other substances of that class, and there's many others. Um, and uh, when you're maintaining or sort of on a break, you just go back to the replacement dose of testosterone. Some people can choose to cycle off completely, and that's totally fine. Um, or just go back to very low doses for a while, give your body a break, make sure you're healthy, and, and then go back into threading in the uh, you know the uh, anabolics on top of that. And then you can sort of titrate the anabolics as you see fit to get the results you want. And then sort of if you want to do a contest or something like that or really turn it up pre-contest, you can throw in some orals on top of that just to accomplish uh, some other effects. So you can throw in some Anavar on top of that or perhaps some Winstrol or something like that for oh, six to eight, four to eight weeks roughly and start at the very lowest dosages, so 10 to 30 milligrams per day of each of those or not, not both at the same time. Um, if you look up the Boston Lloyd cycle online, there's some hilarious doses there where he basically took as like as many possible drugs together as possible. It's like 12 grams total per week. It's uh, comical. Uh, Broderick and I were talking about how his dealer must be lying to him. There's, there's no way it's real shit. Cause he would just, he just thought his liver would just throw up a white flag and be like, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> but, um, sort of that's kind of how it goes. And then to the next level is, you know, probably you would so, sort of end up somewhere in the one to two gram range of combined base testosterone plus anabolic, potentially plus orals at various times or another anabolic. So your total gear burden is one to two grams per week, a thousand to 2000 milligrams. After that range, taking much more gear than that uh, sort of doesn't do as much as you'd like. And it probably causes more side effects than you'd like. So then if your goal is competitive bodybuilding and or powerlifting or something like that, uh, and yours again, everything's legal in your uh, area of, of use, and you've thought the ethics well through, you're not cheating at sports, so on and so forth, and you're okay with this, and you're monitoring your health very well. Then that's where the avenue opens up to growth hormone use, and later the avenue opens up to insulin use with growth hormone, and, and so on and so forth. If you are a bodybuilder, uh, what is going to be sometimes uh, utilized compounds are sort of uh, the fat burning compounds. That's where clenbuterol might come in. Oh, this has got a shitload of side effects, it's kind of annoying. Um, and uh, so potentially something like DNP, so on and so forth, for dedicated per uh, points of time during cutting. And then at that point, you also see the appearance potentially of substances like trenbolone, which have a zillion fucking side effects. They're not for everyone. They're ruthlessly effective, but they're toxic as fuck, and you only use them for a couple of months at a time. And for very, very distinct goals, like I need to squat 900 pounds, or I need to place top three at this bodybuilding show or something. Um, uh, to, to reference my mentor, Broderick Chavez at Team Evil Genius, on this subject, um, nandrolones are not, not great substances, and uh, uh, Tren is a nandrolone uh, derivative. So um, I think uh, probably a better choice instead of Tren is, uh, is a very, very not well-known well drug, but they've, from what I understand, been using it a lot in Kuwait, um, is uh, called 1-testosterone, or otherwise known as dihydroboldenone, DHB. It is mildly liver toxic, it is uh, injectable, but it is, it's also nicknamed Super Primo. Because it doesn't have a ton of side effects, but its main effects are just radical at really small amounts of injectable volume. And that's kind of like a version of trend that's cleaner burning. Um, you can't use it for as long, but boy, does it fucking work. Holy shit. And it's not something you want to take for a long time, but that's something to thread in as another tier on top of everything. And um, so if you kind of want to know what the oxygen gym look is about, it's about several grams of test. or not, So not several grams of test, you know, not a ton of test several grams, one to two, one to three grams of anabolics, some DHB threaded on top, some orals, insulin, growth hormone, and potential cutting agents when the time is right. So those are kind of your tiers of expansion. And there's, there's big levels between those tiers for sure. 
Okay, uh, this was very comprehensive, and I think we should leave out the top tier because um, I don't think it will be really relevant for for most people. Which uh, I hope not. On. I pity the person for whom it's relevant. That's a, that's a lot of shit to put your body through. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you should probably just focus on auras and perhaps the low dose tests you mentioned, and that's about it. Because um, I think higher than that, the people. Uh, should know this stuff they shouldn't be relying on us educating them. you should get a coach for that stuff don't exactly. do that your own. Yeah. exactly so i'm curious about the auras because um you know i always heard and obviously both abel and i are very uh uh naive um and uneducated on america's we don't use ourselves and uh, so <laughs> forgive us if our questions might be <laughs> you know the kind of questions you get from people who are not Dumb uh, very fuck. very exactly we are very, Dumb very <laughs> <laughs> very ignorant about the matter. No, God. Um, so the most common one I hear uh, brought up in conversation around me is Diana Ball. I looked it up. It's the Romanian, I guess, product name is Naposim. Uh-huh. By the way, so it's basically is uh, Meton Dianone. I looked it up on Wikipedia. Diana Ball is the is the common name. Where does that lie in that scale? Uh, and uh, I guess a general question about auras, like how should you or how can you tell if you have a legit one? Because I heard stories about people who some say, you know, I got this one and it worked great. Others say I got it and I felt nothing. And probably there are some counterfeit ones because they are not legal in Romania. So they end up buying it from all sorts of uh, shady labs from like uh, Bulgaria or Moldova. Sure. Why <laughs> you got to throw Moldova like under the bus? Like, oh my God, how rude. <laughs> what a great country that is. Um, so in Belarus, you know, which might as well add to that. Um, <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I'm probably not the best person to ask that sort of question because um, I think that if you can't guarantee, almost guarantee that you're using real shit, you shouldn't be using shit. So, like, Mm -hmm. if you don't know anyone in the gym or any of your friends or any acquaintances that can hook you up with a legit source, mm, don't do it because you're just not embedded in the culture enough to have anyone to talk to about if things go wrong, first of all. Second of all, you could be taking rat poison for all you know. Now, people almost never lace their shit with rat poison. It's a very bad way to retain customers. But it could just be totally fake. Um, the thing is, uh, fake gear, is there's a lot of fake gear. And almost no one who really knows their shit ever takes fake gear. Because people who know their shit know the people who make their gear. And those people would never fuck them over. Hmm. So how do you know your gear is fake? Uh, in some ways, you can't. Because you might not be taking enough. In some ways, you can't because your androgen sensitivity might just not be that high. And you're just the person that just doesn't get a whole lot of gear. I've seen people, I know people, who have run the kitchen sink and barely changed. Mm-hmm. Right? And I also know people who, who've run uh, 30 milligrams of Anivar per for one month and had a revolution in their physique. Like, like just completely different person. And psycho- psychologically, we're just like, ah, like it was totally nuts. <laughs> so it, there's, there's that discount you have to apply to the whole equation where, you know, even if it, it could just be real gear. Um, the easiest way to go about it, actually, is in most countries, um, you can take the gear you have and send it off to a lab to get uh, analyzed by a spectrometer, and that's it. You just mass spec, and they tell you exactly what's in it. Um, so that's always a thing, and it's not super expensive. And uh, some, if it is super expensive, then I guess you're going to have to roll the dice. But honestly, just just only go to trusted sources, mass spec if you can't, um, uh, or even if you can. And then on top of that, um, the last thing I'll say, if, of course, this is couched with the caveats of you could just not be an amazing responder or be taking sort of not enough, but um, especially with orals, within a couple of weeks, you'll know. Uh, first thing that tends to happen with orals is people tend to, like if they're on a fat loss phase, they tend to stop losing body weight and they just continue to get leaner and stronger. <laughs> and they're like, okay, this is not supposed to be happening. Like you'll be eating like 2,000 calories a day when you're supposed to be eating 3,000 and your body weight doesn't go down. Body weight doesn't go down. A week later, your body weight hasn't moved. And then you go to the gym 
and you move weights and uh, like usually well, let's say it's like a 10 rep max or so by the seventh rep it starts moving slow by the eighth rep it's not moving slow and you're like oh okay um uh, you guys know like so like let's invent this sort of mythical training partner that is just outside your reach on the best day does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like he, you know, mm-hmm. you squat 300, he squats 315. On your best day, you squat 310, but he's still just a little bit ahead of you. Like when someone watches the two of you work out, if they watch for an hour, they're like, that guy's stronger. It's not by much, but he's stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, you turn into that person within several weeks of use on average. So it's one of those things like, am I just having a couple of good workouts? Mm, yeah, for a couple of weeks, that might be the case. After week three or four, you're like, I'm not just having good workout. I'm on some shit. Something's happening. <laughs> but this is not like, you know, I'm not supposed to be getting stronger when I'm cutting. And that's what's going on. Um, or I'm maintaining and I'm just, I'm seeing visual changes week to week now. and I'm getting crazy pumps. And if you're not, either you're a low responder or your gear is fake. But to be honest, the fake gear thing, again, like I said, is should not be an issue. And if it is, then you should not be doing drugs. Hmm. Right. Um, Mike, one, one thing I want to um, piggyback on, which you mentioned in the beginning, is that some of these oral things are relatively low risk in that their side effects are relatively mild and even if there are some the half-life is pretty short and it almost sounded like with some of these you can almost get a a free lunch like did i understand well that you can just try these things um and you can just come off of them and you might even retain most of your results because that's one of the common fear uh, around steroids is that or any kind of drug in general is that once you're on you have to stay on it or if you get off of it then your results are vanishing as well yeah totally so it's not a free lunch it's a low-cost lunch um, it's kind of like this, um, let's say that you are passing through some kind of town you're visiting and somewhere in Europe, you guys have, you guys live in Europe, so you can just go drive mm-hmm. around and go to different cultures within, you know, a half an hour where in the United States, you can drive for 10 hours and it's identical culture. Um, so someone's like, Hey, there's this restaurant in this one town. You're going to be passing through the fucking cannolis there, whatever, super fucking good. The desserts are amazing. You should really fucking try them. You know, you drive through the town. If the desserts are like, uh, like they cost like a Euro each and they're pretty big. If it sucks, you're like, Hey, cocksucker on Instagram. I went to your restaurant. They're like, how was it? Did you get the bug of ever dessert? You're like, yeah, it sucked. Fuck you. But they're like, yeah, I know. Sorry. It's just, I got a weird like sense of taste. And they're like, but you look back at it, you're like, it was a fucking, like it was a fucking Euro. Like, who cares? Like whatever. Right. But if it's like mm-hmm. a 20 Euro dinner uh, and it sucks, you're going to be like, God damn it. <laughs> like 20 fucking euros, man. Like this is bullshit. Like I, I feel fucking ripped off. Like, mm-hmm. One thing that I promised myself is to never, never go to a well-rated restaurant ever again. Is I seem to have the worst luck ever. People are like you need to go to this restaurant. It's like Michelin star. I go in there, it sucks, and I'm out like hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, I'm gonna fuck cut my own dick off. This is awful, yeah. <laughs> right? So the thing with starting with something like Anavar for a month is it is not a free lunch. It does have health effects, but the health effects are almost all completely reversible, and they're just very small, right? So for example, with Anavar, your blood pressure can escalate, and your a good cholesterol can fall quite precipitously. But if a month of your life sees a moderate fall in your good cholesterol and a tiny rise in your blood pressure, um, gee, you know, that's really just not a big deal, right? And because you can, um, it's like a canary in the coal mine. You throw it in for a month and see how you feel because anabolics are just not for a lot of people. There's just not. Some people get a huge anxiety response from anabolics. One of the predicted side effects is very well documented. Some people who are already prone to anxiety and have poor coping mechanisms for it, they'll get on anabolics, they'll freak the fuck out, and they'll just get off. And wouldn't you rather freak out on something that's out of your system in two days versus something that you've got to be dealing with for another month? <laughs> fuck. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's one of those things where it's t- definitely not a free lunch. It's a low-cost lunch. But then again, you just don't get that much. right? You get like one little dessert. So, so when I say that you keep most of your gains, you do. 
but it's just not that much gains. How many gains do you make in a month? You might you may gain like you know half a kilo of, of true true resilient real contractile tissue. That half a kilo, sweet, right? In a month, that's, that's pretty good for somebody who's advanced. Mm. Uh, but you know, it's nothing to write home about, and you might lose like three kilos of fat, and you keep all the three kilos off, and, and keep a kilo of, uh, or half a kilo of muscle. You know, you repeat that two or three times a year. That's pretty fucking sweet, especially at the tail end of a fat loss phase or something. Um, then you're just capping your fat loss phases super well, and it's just leading to really good potentiation across your masking phases. Uh, you're preventing muscle loss almost entirely in a fat loss phase, because let's be honest, in the first, let's say you run a three-month fat loss phase, if you're doing things right, in the first two months, muscle loss is not a concern for naturals at all. Last month, maybe it is. And then you take, uh, you know, 30 milligrams of Ativar in your last month, you don't lose any mu uh, muscle, you gain a little bit, you lose a shitload of fat, you look your absolute best, and then afterwards you proceed to drug-free mass as normal, so on and so forth. And then if that process is something you like, keep doing it, and if you want to up the ante, you can up the ante, but you're very well informed on how your body responds, how your body weight responds, how your health responds, so on and so forth. And that's a big, big thing about like making sure to get your health checked. Uh, your blood pressure is the number one thing to think about when you're using these substances because chronic high blood pressure will kill every fucking organ in your body. It literally just shreds your eyes, your kidneys, everything. So your blood pressure is, especially if you decide to dip into the injectables and go for months, you have to keep track of your blood pressure. The good news is, well, in Europe, you guys can get pretty much any drugs over the mail for whatever, but um, there's about like 150 blood pressure drugs. It's one of the most advanced farm industries. They've essentially uh, weeded out all the side effects. These drugs are almost, almost free. They're so cheap and they're radically effective. There is never any reason to have chronic high blood pressure. Like you buy like lisinopril costs like 20 cents a pill. You take one pill a day, you're fucking golden. And you gladly, gladly any doctor would be like, I have high blood pressure. And he's like, why? You're like, oh, just, you explain the situation. At least in the United States, we have a medical uh, legal act that you can tell your doctor anything and he's not allowed to tell anyone else about it unless you're like, hey, I have children trapped in my home and I'm slowly cutting off their limbs. Like he has to go to the police. But if you're like, hey, I'm using these supplements, he's going to be like, you're supposed to not be doing that. You're like, I know, but I have sort of high blood pressure. Is there anything we do about that? He's going to be like, well, here's a script for, you know, this blood pressure med. And it'll take care of the problem 100%. And also, of course, you can do a lot about that with diet and so on and so forth. Like if you're a fat piece of shit and you're still getting fatter and you're taking drugs, you're just going to have high blood pressure, right? But <laughs> if you clean up your act and do a fat loss phase, you might not even need blood pressure drugs and so on and so forth. Blood pressure, uh, red blood cell count, so on and so forth. You have to keep track of that, stuff, which is why like, I'm one of the, the hugest, you know, uh, one of the things that I find the most problematic is, is the clubbing culture with drugs, with a stupid bro culture where they'll just run shit and, and um, they'll just run themselves into the ground. They have no idea what happened. Uh, there's... Uh, I'll leave all the names out of this, but um, one of my very good friends is a medical doctor, and he's been in and around the use of pharmacological substances for a considerable length of time. And the, the guy come to his practice that was like, uh, you know, uh, you know, I've been feeling a bit interesting, and I want a physical. And the guy's like purple, like purple. His color is purple, and they do his blood <laughs> pressure is super fucking high, right? Exactly, it's super super high. And he's like, so, and and my buddy was like, so, uh, you know. What are you running? And the guy's like, oh, no, nothing. I'm not taking stuff. And he sort of switched the subject, talked about general health, blah, 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 and came back. He's like, so what are you using? And my buddy's jacked, right, clearly. And uh, he's like, well, just like, just the really low-dose shit, like just like 300 tests and just a couple of orals every now and again. And so he changed the subject, talked about other health, talked about blood work, and then came around. He's like, so what are you taking? And the guy's like, well, <laughs> he gets into this laundry list of like five total grams of shit, no blood pressure meds, no attention to health. And he's been doing this for like months and years. And it was the first time he luckily decided to show up to the doctor's office because I think he had symptoms. And by then he had been walking around with like 190 over 140 blood pressure for God knows how long. And that is the years off of that man's life. So the last thing you want to do is think these are supplements. They're not things you buy at GNC. They're not toys. They're not recreational drugs. They're very serious things that alter your body in many positive and very many negative ways. It's on you to make sure you get proper blood work and monitoring, hopefully with a coach and with a medical doctor, to make sure that you are mitigating as many of the negatives as possible. Sorry for the rant. Right. Hmm. I'm curious. Um, 
why do you uh, set that one month cutoff with like NMR? Uh, is it yeah. past that point that the side effects tend to accumulate? No, 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 not particularly. The side effects accumulate rather linearly. Um, after about a month, the uh, HPTA axis starts to get shut down. So then you have to deal with the bullshit of turning your nuts back on, mm. right? So you stop producing digest testosterone. But up to three to four weeks, most people just don't see a very uh, robust shutdown. And if they do, the um, it takes just a week or two to get everything back to normal. So that's why it's a month. And also, right. coincidentally, a month is just long enough to really get a pretty good effect and to really be able to see how you interact with it, right? So, mm -hmm. so, but the number one reason is definitely the HPTA. And that's the thing is like I would love to come on and talk about post-cycle therapy. I know nothing about that at all. In my view, you either take orals for blips here and there before your music festival or whatever the fuck is an informed adult, or you make a commitment to hitting the needle for a longer time. And, and then you cycle in larger dosages for specific purposes, and you go back to essentially TRT when you're in between those. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, and um, sorry, just one more uh, from my curiosity. Um, you mentioned the ten to thirty uh, range. I would assume that with the thirty straight up, those uh, those sh that shut off would happen more rapidly. I guess. It, no, it's not. It's it, that's no. a funny. That's a very a very good assumption. That it just happens to be inaccurate. I actually made that assumption myself a long time ago when I was first researching in this and first read all these books on anabolics. And I was talking to my friends. Uh, no, shutdown happens with any market presence of an exogenous substance. It just happens the same way no matter how much you take. So, uh, you know, a real cruel joke to play on someone would be to give them like uh, 10 milligrams or 5 milligrams or something for like four months. They'd get completely shut down, get almost no effects, and you're just like, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, you definitely um, – there's no, there's no real difference there. But as far as side effects, fuck yeah. Main effects, huge difference. So and a lot of the reason we start – so with so little is because you don't need any more at that point. You're going to get robust effects anyway. And another reason is, look, if you're going to run into negative sides, you'll be real thankful you were doing a lower dose than if you were doing a higher dose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, what, another, a question I would have on side effects, and this might be, again, a not so well-informed question, but um, when people talk about side effects with steroids or anabolic agents of any kind, it's always um, kind of a nebulous answer, like nobody seems to be able to give a clear answer, I'm assuming, because there really isn't one. And we tend to see this uh, interactive with some people who uh, ran some different cycles. And I heard some really sad stories of how their testosterone production is still not back to normal, and they dealt with some depressive periods and stuff. And at the same time, we see people who, I mean, of course, we don't really know what happened with these people like Arnold, but, you know, he seems to be living till an old age, he seems to do pretty well, he looks pretty healthy. And or there are certain side effects which will almost certainly hit to some extent everyone, like, I don't know, acne or boldness or what have you. And then there are some side effects besides that which will only hit the more unfortunate cases. Like, can we draw a spectrum like this? Yeah. So um, everyone will get their uh, – uh, everyone or almost everyone will get their natural testosterone production shut down. Um, and that's about the only side effect that's universal. Uh, everything else happens on a spectrum scale with a significant number of people seeing no side effects at all. Um, so, and then the long-term health consequences also occur on a spectrum scale. Um, so there are no side effects you can promise. And the main effects, again, occur on a spectrum scale. Some people just don't even gain muscle on drugs. They just don't. Um, and most people do, and some people gain a shitload, and some people gain a smaller amount. Um, what you can bet on pretty reliably is the more drugs you do over the total amount of your life, the shorter your lifespan will be versus what it would have been if you had never done drugs. Um, that is almost guaranteed. So um, at that point, every use of drug is a trade-off between perceived quality of life and longevity. And what I mean by that is 
if you really want to take drugs so much that they're going to boost your what you want out of life so much that you're willing to chop days or weeks or months or years off of your life at the tail end, uh, then that is a choice and trade-off you're going to have to make. So everyone's shit gets shut down. Now, when your uh, endogenous production gets shut down, there's a huge divergence of responses on how quickly and if or at all it comes back. Some very small percentage of people will be shut down forever and no amount of medical intervention gets their um, testosterone or sperm production back. Very rare. Uh, and some people can go off cycle and seemingly dick happens and then within three or four weeks they're back to their normal selves. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> fuck you. Right? And then for most people, it's a several month process of establishing normal testosterone levels uh, after the cessation of, of drug use. Um, everything in between there is side effect wise. You could expect some usually of the main side effects. Um, most people will get some degree of hair thinning and balding. Most people will get a degree of some uh, hirsutism, some hair growth in various parts of the body where you may not be interested in it or interested in it, depending on what kind of look you want. Um, you, uh, and of course, this is like sort of magnified by genetics. Like if everyone in your family is a hairy motherfucker, when you jump on gear, you're going to be a really hairy motherfucker. Like, um, I remember a story of Jay Cutler only had to start a only had to start shaving his back like after winning the Olympia like four times. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Like some people just don't grow body hair. They just don't. Um, Good for them. Yeah, seriously. Fuck, I'm jealous. <laughs> shit, you know. Is, Me too. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, all of us Eastern Europeans are fucked in that department. But uh, <laughs> but we're real men, am I right? <laughs> so um, so in any case, you know, you get that. Um, most people's um, uh, sort of a skin appearance quality degrade, so they'll uh, have more oil production in their skin. Uh, and probably more pimples than they're used to, which for some people is still almost zero, and for some people is like sheets of the worst acne you've ever seen in your life. Um, liver values uh, from orals. Some people take orals for a couple weeks and their liver is like, help, I'm dying. Some people take orals for years, literally, and nothing happens to their liver perceptibly at all. Like, you guys are Eastern European, you know about this with alcohol. Some, you, you, we all know some grandpas that have been drinking like a bottle of vodka a day and they're 89 years old. You're like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> and then some people just die of alcoholism in their mid-20s and you're like, okay, so it's just totally the same thing there. Um, uh, blood lipid profiles, some people's blood lipids just do crazy, crazy shit for minimal gear. Some people have blood lipids that are unbelievable all the time. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, there's uh, all the cardiometabolic outcomes, uh, cardiac hypertrophy, uh, et cetera, risk of heart disease, so on and so forth. But these, almost all of these can be monitored very, very closely and very well. And if your responses are poor, you either switch up the program or you stop the program. And, or you accept the fact that you're going to die sooner than later and you keep going full in. So. Right. Um, and speaking of uh, side effects and how permanent they might be, we mentioned that there might be a lower cost lunch, not a free lunch in the case of some of these orals. But what, what are the type of muscle mass gains that are, you know, you make them and then if you actually want to keep those, then you have to stay on the stuff for life. And if you get off of it, then you're just going to lose most of it. Like we see in the case of someone like Ronnie Coleman, obviously he also stopped training as hard as he used to, but he looks pretty netty now. Also, he's he like 50. No <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, like, where where does that cutoff start to happen? Where okay, like, if you want to be this big, then you will have to stay on the stuff. So, I think that uh, taking anabolics and um, uh, coming off of them at some point can allow you to retain a just a bit beyond your natural limit, and not much further than that. So, whatever your natural rough limit was, like with a very hard work and a decade of training, where you got. I think anabolics can take you, oh, this is a total guess, but maybe five to 10 pounds more muscle above that, five to 10 pounds less fat. And you can probably keep that for the sort of prime of your life, your 20s, 30s, and early 40s, for sure. 
um, if you endeavor to be more muscular and leaner than that, you'll need a constant pharmacological intervention to upkeep that. So nobody's going to be walking around. You don't get to Roly Winkler size and then come off and stay Roly Winkler size. <laughs> Roly Winkler doesn't stay his own size unless he's on the kitchen sink. So it, there's definitely that to consider. So I, I almost think that this, this might be a good opportunity to say the following. If your goal with drugs is to exceed your natural limit considerably and come off entirely and just be natty again and have all the benefits of drugs hang around with you, that's just not how it works. It's just not. Uh, can it give you an unfair advantage if you do that and cheat at sport later? Yes, just enough to give you an unfair advantage, but it won't make you into a different person. Like if someone had used drugs to get up to 225 pounds as a contest bodybuilder on stage where their genetics maximally could have taken them to be 190, right? And they ran everything they needed to get to 225 on stage. If they intelligently come off and they have good genetics for coming off and it's a several year process, they might be able to compete as a natural at 200 pounds, maybe 205, uh, but they're not going to be competing in the 220s and 230s like after taking all this gear to be there. You know what I mean? Like there's, mm -hmm. there's an element of a pull that you just rebound back to. Like there's your natural genetics cannot sustain that level of leanness and muscularity. The repartitioning just doesn't allow it, so on and so forth. Um, Another thing to consider is there are things drugs can't change. Uh, potentially, we don't know a lot about this, but it's seemingly like drugs probably don't alter your myonuclear number to any measurable extent. Um, so, you know, what they can do is they can make each muscle cell as big as it can get, and especially big on the sarcoplasmic front where they fill it with fluids and so on and so forth. So you look huge and you are huge. When you come off the drugs, you lose a shitload of size. The majority of size loss coming off of drugs, especially in the first several months, is just water in, in, in the muscles. It's similar to creatine. So... Um, there's a certain amount of things that people are like, I'm going to take drugs and it's going to elevate me to the next level. Like, yeah, you probably could have gotten close to that level just being drug-free. And drugs will elevate you there, but you have to keep taking them to stay there. And if you come off the drugs, the elevation still exists, but it's relatively minor. Right. Um, just, just so we know how we're standing, uh, Mike, how much time do you have roughly? I'm, I'm, just... relatively, I'm relatively open. So, uh... Oh, cool. Um, Andre, do you have uh, some question that you really want to ask? or? Yeah, I have a couple. Just uh, let me... Uh, get rid of this train. <laughs> oh, long train running. You're getting rid of a train like Magneto. You're gonna like swipe it off the fucking tracks. <laughs> yeah, I, I sw swiped it off already. It's gone. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, yeah. So I have uh, one more question about the topic. Then I have a couple of listener questions that I would like to ask. So what did you say that uh, fat burners, for example, are sort of a last resort or something that should be added later? Because obviously those are the <laughs> Again, going off of uh, gym conversations and what I hear from others, like I mentioned, like Dianabol, uh, Anavar, Dianabol, those are common. Even Let me tell you why people use Dianabol. Dianabol puts a lot of water in your muscles. It increases your strength for that reason and some other neurological reasons. And it makes you feel very, very big. And it also usually improves your appetite. Um, it also makes you feel good. It has a euphoric sensation that comes along with it. And it's cheap as fuck and really readily available. Mm. Real Anavar is hard to get. Real Anavar, you just walk over and there it is, right? Um, Anavar has a much more – you're not going to get a huge bloat off of Anavar. For many people, it shuts their appetite down versus up, um, making it an excellent drug for fat loss, by the way. But mm. uh, you know, a lot of people who are in the gym, bros – Fat loss is not their number one. They want to be jacked, right? So they take D-ball, and all of a sudden they're repping big weights. They're fucking huge. Everything's great. They feel great. Arr! That's why people take D-ball, and it's cheap. Um, mm -hmm. Anavar is like considerably more expensive than D-ball, and you take it for a couple weeks, and you're like, eh, I don't know. I'm just not Superman yet. And, you know, it's it, again, it's because it's so mild, and it's designed to be so mild, but it, it does these excellent things. So D-ball is way more side effects, but sometimes, and this is a funny thing in drugs, people – 
the side effects is how they know they're having a real drug, first of all. Uh, and second of all, they think the side effects are the main effects, like the bloating and so on and so forth. So that's why that's why you've heard D-ball a lot, more, more than likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the interest in fat burners is mostly because people have a misperception of how fat burners work. Um, they think it's a drug you take and it just plain old burns fat. And while that is true to some extent, more often than not, fat burners are substances that either really severely degrade your appetite and or give you a level of energy above and beyond what you would normally have so that because you're still on a low-calorie diet, you can still operate and train and feel like you're normal. Uh, Clenbuterol is an example of both of those effects. Um, and so is caffeine, interestingly enough, and stimulants are very powerful fat burners that I think go into this class of drug no problem. Um, put you this way, if you, if you do 800 milligrams of caffeine per day, you'll get way worse side effects than any reasonable dose of clenbuterol. I promise you that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then there's uh, other fat burners that are more advanced, such as DNP, uh, but most people will never take DNP, and if they ever do, they'll just stop because it's super annoying to take. Um, and DNP is a f- true fat burner, but it comes at a huge price. And the price is it makes you feel like dog shit all the time, you sweat like a fucking animal all the time, and you feel weak as fuck at every conceivable moment of the day, um, and mentally and physically, right? Uh, but it helps you drop body fat. But the thing is, none of these work super well unless your diet's pretty good to begin with. And if you're hypocaloric, it's that edge, that little bit of edge that they give you. So the thing is, bodybuilders normally, the kind of people that you see competing in bodybuilding that also take these categories of drugs, they're so muscular, they normally eat an amount of food that makes them sick. When they diet, 90% of their diet, maybe 75% of their diet is, thank God I don't have to eat this much food anymore. Like they just go back to eating a food amount that just fills them up and is boring. They lose kilos and kilos and kilos and kilos. The last month, maybe the last two weeks, or sorry, two months of a diet, they might thread in some appetite suppressants and some fat burners to just kind of keep the process rolling along without too much discomfort. But it's not something like you start taking a fat burner as soon as you start a uh, 16 or 20 week contest prep, because that would be just First of all, these things have really fast feedback loops compared to anabolics. Like you, you take them for several weeks and you have to either ramp the dose up or they just stop working entirely. You have to cycle them in and out. They come with a shitload more side effects and they're just not that powerful. Like there's nothing Clen can do for you that a 500 calorie additional diet deficit won't. As a matter of fact, there's nothing Clen can do for you that it won't. Uh, it can make a 500 calorie diet deficit, uh, make you less hungry. You'll still have plenty of energy and you'll burn a little bit more fat than normal, which is awesome when you need it at those low body fat levels when you're approaching 5%, 4%, so on and so mm. forth. So that's what I meant as you pepper it in towards the end because it's just not a heavy lifting sort of operation. It's just fat burners just don't, there's no pill to take which you're like, that's it, man, goodbye fat. I'm going to take this for 16 weeks and I'm going to be lean. It just doesn't work like that. It's an enhancer much more than it is a main effect sort of substance. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, I watched uh, Stan Efferding a seminar like a couple of days ago, and at point he was mentioning that you know like pretty much every food teacher of every professional bodybuilder is like them shoving food with like a bored, disgusted look on their yep. faces. <laughs> yep, yep, hundred percent. So for them, you know, calorie deficit is a welcome, welcome thing. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because this is an uh, interesting difference. You watch small, especially smaller, natural bodybuilders comment on their diets on Facebook, and they're like, I'm starving, I'm hungry, I have all these cravings, I want to kill myself, mm-hmm. getting leaner. And then you look at the IFB pros, like I used to read muscular development religiously all the time, and you know, I follow a lot of these people on Instagram for inspiration. You, every, every 10th comment is like, the diet's tough, and you're like, how's it tough? And like, it's boring as fuck. And like, what about cravings? You're like, yeah, I have cravings, I want pizza. And you're like, are you hungry? And they're like, no, I'm not hungry. I have trouble eating this much rice. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, you're three weeks out of a show, and it's all you weigh you know, 110 kilos, but gee, you know, you can generate a 750 calorie deficit and still be eating 4,000 calories a day, especially if you train a lot. And especially if the throughput of all these drugs is really high. So let me explain what I mean by that. When you're on a considerable amount of anabolics and you're on, let's say, peptides, growth hormones, so on and so forth, 
and you're training a shitload, training up to the gear, so to speak. Like you're training as much as the gear will allow, which means a lot. Mm-hmm. Your total caloric burn is fucking massive because all of these are engaged processes that require energy and substrates. So all you have to do is normally just to maintain your weight, you have to eat like 5,000 calories just to keep yourself going along. All you do is you go, you ease down to 4,000 and boom, body fat, body fat loss, body fat loss, body fat loss. And then the only time that process sort of comes to a halt is maybe like, you know, a month or two before the show when you're already in single digit body fats. And then you can throw in some of these appetite suppressants, fat loss pills, blah, blah, blah. Uh, mostly caffeine, really, for most of these guys is what they use. And then, and then you know, you drop to 3,000 calories, and then you're fucking golden. You step on stage, right? Um, uh, the burden there is the monotony, the consistency, the insane training volumes, and the fact that you're eating boring fucking foods all the time, and arguably difficult to eat a lot of boring food, you know, like... Uh, and, and some of the, it depends on some, some guys respond to drugs. Some guys will have huge appetite suppressing effects from drugs. And these are the same drugs they do on mass gain and on a cutting phase. So on a mass gain, they really, really just have like a tough time because the appetite suppressed and they have to shove the food down. And then on a fat loss phase towards the end, it's just the fatigue and the monotony that gets you with a lot of these people. It's not exactly the hunger, but if it's hunger, then there's, there's lots of hunger cutting drugs out there that work really well. Yeah. Uh, on the food side of things, I'm interested in. Um, how it changes the game in the sense that when I'm watching some of these really big bodybuilders like the Ronnie Coleman's, I watched the King documentary on Netflix. And that was great. Yeah, yeah. But like, honestly, I'm looking at the meals of these guys and I just want to throw up in my mouth. It's just like they're sitting down and like with 1,500 chicken breasts in one meal. And it's like, man, if you have to eat that much, like why don't you, if, if it's your macros, it yeah. a little bit, you know, is there some reason like do these drugs interact uh, in your body in a way that certain combination of fats and carbs or whatever are just really going to throw things off? Or how does that Great work? question. I wonder if it's just tra- uh, tradition, really. Two-part answer. One of these answers will be highly politically incorrect. Um, I may be the first person to verbalize this. This is something my my coach slash friend Broderick and I talk about. And it's true, and it should be said just so it can be out there and people can know. Um, I don't like to say it, but it's true. So the, that's the second part. The first part is when you're taking um, exogenous insulin, and if you are, the predictability of your glycemic response is literally life or death. You have to standardize the foods you take in because if it fits your macros, will fucking kill you. For example, <laughs> if you have two different kinds of breakfast cereals, identical macros, but one of them has more fiber. One of them has a different combination of uh, sugars. One of them has a few sugar alcohols. Uh, or one of them just has a food ingredient that you're mildly, not allergic to, but irritable to, and it slows down your digestion and absorption of carbohydrates. You enter into a hypoglycemic episode, you have to drink like five Gatorades, and you're huffing and puffing and sweating, and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And and you're not wrong, you might die. So the uh, predictability of the foods is a paramount when you're using insulin. White rice and chicken, white rice and fish, because you know exactly how your blood sugar reacts to those meals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's definitely that. So when you see Jay Cutler eat the same shit all the time, that's why. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part of the answer is the following. Um, uh, how do I phrase this charitably? Let's see if I'm in a diet-induced mood to phrase this charitably. <laughs> uh, a lot of folks in bodybuilding, probably not the best bodybuilders, but some folks in bodybuilding, are either so deep into bro culture or so willfully unintellectual or not curious or so intellectually lazy. The concept of counting macronutrients is not going to make sense to them, or they're not interested in learning it. With folks like this, if you're coaching them, you have to give them discrete quantities of exact foods, or they'll fuck it up. You have to say two cups of white rice and a cup of chicken. 
And if they ask you, like, okay, like, well, I have a variety of sources. I have quinoa, I have whole grain, blah, blah, blah. What kind of macros do you want? And I'll do it. The coach is going to be like, oh, holy shit, these speak macros? Great. Well, Nick, here's 100 grams of carbs and 50 grams of protein, 10 grams of fat. Enjoy. <laughs> but <laughs> that almost never happens. Or not almost. It, it happens to a small enough extent to where the meals need to essentially be, to quote my friend Broderick, modular. Like, this, this, this. You eat this, this, that. And then the diet updates for these guys, like, if they're not losing fat on track, if they need more food or less food, is, like, literally, like, add one more meal or... Uh, go from one cup of rice to two cups of rice or from one and a half cup to half cup. That's it. Because if you start throwing mathematics, like the numbers, eh, the shit just goes out the drain. You'll get a calculation error. And again, when you're messing with peptides, a calculation error is a fucking disaster. Like, and you guys are both coaches. You have worked with regular clients, um, business people, uh, teachers, etc. that are, are uh, uh, you know, uh, you are helping as a coach and you have may have taught them, tried to teach them or successfully taught them macro counting. You already know that otherwise very intelligent, very successful people can look at macro counting and be like, what? Or you'll find out that they were counting salary as like 900 grams of carbs where it's really like five because they were reading the grams <laughs> instead of the carbs. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, there is some, some valleys and hills here. When you hire a prep coach, usually you hire him and you're like, hey, I want to get ready for these shows. Maybe he'll work with the offseason with you, maybe not. And there might not be any time for this kind of onboarding. And it, a lot of these bodybuilders, are, there's quite intelligent people but they've been doing these things momentum-wise for long enough to where reteaching them in macros is a fucking wash. Like, so Kevin Laverone, his last show that he did, I think, uh, last couple shows, he did it IFYM style. And, and he was like 55 years old and he was fucking look, unbelievable, right? And he said it was great. You wish he knew this when he was prepping. But, you know, he's the exception. Most individuals just have this modular nature uh, because it's simple, it works. And to be honest, there is also an FPRH element to this, right? Food palliability work hypothesis where... A lot of these folks, when they're cutting for a show, they want to keep it simple for, for two specific reasons. One, uh, the food's not that fun and not that uh, exciting, so it doesn't make them crave it anymore. And two, uh, it actually reduces food focus, right? If you start to, you guys have been down this road where you start to get really creative with your macros and mm -hmm. you just think about food all the time. You think, ooh, what am I going to put in my next meal? Oh my God, I'm going to have half a Pop-Tart and one cheese it and you're just driving yourself nuts. These guys just rice, chicken, broccoli, done, right? And then they can think about anything else other than food because when you're miserable, you know, when you're in jail, don't think about freedom because it'll fucking break you down, right? It's the same idea, yeah, yeah. right? Like, mm -hmm. just focus on the deal, do what you do, and get through each day, and that's kind of the idea behind that. So hopefully, there's a, sorry, the long-winded answer, but that's probably some combination of the correct answer, is pharmacological reality with insulin and peptide use, and uh, just an economy of effort based on people who are just not, not used to counting macros, and are some combination not qualified to do so or not interested in doing so. Mm. Very, very interesting. Uh, I think it, neither of us thought of that... Uh... GI variability, obviously, because that's not something we, we uh, our pancreas just takes care of that. Um, but uh, well, the other side of the coin is, <laughs> you know, it just hit me like uh, the influence of these uh, professional bodybuilders have on naturals. Like, um, <clears throat> for example, like just yesterday, someone asked me at the gym, like, uh, so do you help people with their diets? I'm like, yeah. So can you like provide me a meal plan? I was like, I'm not doing that. Why? Because I educate people. And uh, I think this is uh, coming at least partly from these people who are uh, eating these prefixed meals and perhaps they, or obviously they don't disclose why they are doing that. Um, and regular people don't think about, they don't think that they are doing that because they are using insulin and um, perhaps they could or they should learn or educate themselves, but instead they they try to find uh, something as boring and monotone <laughs> as them and actually backfires on them. So it's very interesting that uh, how certain strategies can have very beneficial impacts on 
certain people in certain situations and the opposite in others. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, people have a monkey see, monkey do mentality. When is understandable, right? When someone's walking around at 255 pounds lean and shit, they must be onto something true. And they are. But that doesn't mean that everything they're onto is some combination of true and especially applicable to you. You know, like people will see, hey, you guys see my Instagram and the fucking disaster that that is. Um, I'll be using a cambered bar for squats. And people are like, why the camera bar, Doc? And I'll be like, because I can't fit my hands around a normal bar. And they're like, why not? I'm like, because my traps and arms are so big, I can't grab it anymore. I love high bar squatting more than I love life itself. And I physically can't do it because I can't pinch my shit together anymore because my elbows or shoulders hurt. And, and they'll be like, well, you need to work on your shoulder mobility. I'm like, you don't understand. There's physically stuff in the way. There's just no, yeah. I can't control. And, and they're like, oh, that's interesting. Should I be using it? I'm like, Jesus Christ, just put weight on your back, have a tight lower back, tight core, sit on your heels, squat up and down. Everything else is fucking irrelevant. And people want these little details because they think, you know, oh, like, oh, you know, Dr. Mike's like whatever, 220 pounds with veins in his abs. The way he got that was these little fucking the camber bar squat. That's what it was. It wasn't just leg training. It was that. And people do the same shit with the pros. Like, oh, you know, it must be the fact that like, like people literally ask me, like I, I had a guy ask me, this was unbelievable interaction on social media. Um, I, I mentioned that I did 300 calories of cardio. He's like, what did you do for cardio? And I was like, yes. oh, any, any modality that you like. And he's like, what did you do for cardio? And I was like, why? <laughs> yeah, I, <see laughs> he, that I was like, you know, believe it or not, I'm a sports scientist. I can explain to you in very intricate levels exactly what you need to be doing. And he's like, I don't want to know that. I want to know what you did. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> right? Because there, there must be some magic to it. And the thing is, there is no fucking magic to it. Uh, and if you stick with macros and just general nutritional principles, you're going to be 99 times more prepared than someone who sticks with bro bullshit. And they're going to be sort of buying, what is that, buying the airplane to get the peanuts, right? Like, I've got to fucking eat broccoli and rice and chicken. Otherwise, like, when guys will say shit like, you know, I got to eat steak because it fills up the muscles. Like, what the fuck are you, what are you talking about? Like, that's just something you read in muscular It's total bullshit. It, it, it applies to bodybuilders who, who normally get 20 grams of fat per day and now they're getting 40 grams of fat per day so they're displacing carbohydrate to be put into glycogen and or they're getting some kind of beneficial you know effect from from meat with testosterone production or something like that or just hormone just cholesterol availability and they get a beneficial effect none of that applies to you but but people people want to to copy understandably to copy people what i prefer is deriving principles from what all of the best seem to do mm. and then once you derive the principles you can apply them to yourself but that requires thinking and knowledge and books and shit and most people don't like that kind of stuff oh yeah uh, i don't want to spend too much time but uh, i have like two of these moments like just within a couple of days like these had uh face palm moments like you know I try educating people like you know they see me with my logbook and i try to explain to them i showed uh, I shared uh, my story, your fantastic post about the value of logbooking and all that. And I explained to them, this is how you make reliable progress. And they still come to me and they're like, so I saw this guy on uh, Instagram and he was doing his pushdowns with his elbows like in this far away from his body instead of close to his yeah. body. Like, is that better? And I'm like, didn't we just talk about this like three days ago? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Or, or, or like with the female who I know again, um, we were talking about something and I said to her, hey, come on over and we can like sit down and chat for an hour and I can explain to you like the basic principles of training. Uh, she was like, okay. And a couple hours later, she was like posted on her story that, hey, I'm starting this Instagram girls 30 day workout challenge. And I'm like, oh, fuck me sideways. Like, why? Why? <laughs> um, so gentlemen, I have uh, two type philosophical type questions for the end. Um, I think we're kind of coming up on time so sure, i sure. i would like to ask uh them and then um andre if you have some other stuff for closing then feel free to throw that in so 
one thing is, um, it's kind of hard to phrase this, but I did a couple of videos on the whole like netty or not question, you know, people accusing others with drug use. And, you know, I kind of understand where they are coming from because most of us just don't see very impressive trainees around us. I mean, I train in a commercial gym and I just don't see many people that are that big. And certainly if I compare to the Instagram models and influencers to them, they look unreal. But I've been, for example, at this FIBO Expo in Cologne. It was a freaking weird experience, by the way. And Shit, I bet. <laughs> it was, yeah, and it was full of people who were really obviously on gear. Like, you, it was screaming all over them. Like, uh, you could see it on their skin, even on their face. Like, it was so obvious in many cases. And there was this guy, this, I don't know, Ulysses Jr., or I don't know what his name is. Mm-hmm. Probably you guys yeah. have heard of him. And I would have sworn that he's on drugs before. And honestly, I looked at him at that event, and he just looked like a healthy guy who is natural with crazy freaky shoulders and arms, a really good set of symmetrical blocky abs, and he looked completely natty compared to all the other guys. And I looked at him and I was like, huh, so I guess that's what freaky genetics look like from close up. And even in Dust Gym Vienna, I saw some guys who just, you know, you could see it on their builds. Like they were just big guys with good muscle bellies, good bone structure. They were probably born as big babies to begin with. So I'm curious, like, Probably you, Mike, have interacted with a lot of guys with crazy good genetics that most people would have sworn that they are on drugs. Um, can you share some examples? You don't even have to mention names necessarily of guys that, you know, the average person would swear that they are on drugs and you know for a fact that they are natural. Wow. Um, yeah, tons. So uh, Kai Green comes up as a story. Kai Green turned pro drug-free at roughly 210 pounds on stage with striated glutes. He was completely drug-free. How do we know this? He said he was drug-free. And the first time he switched his next contest, he was on stage at 235 pounds in the same conditioning. Whereas for years, he competed around 200 to 210 pounds. So then you could say, well, he just took more drugs. False. Because a couple years later, he decided to make the plunge to insulin and growth hormone. And then he stepped on stage at 265 pounds. So if we're positing that he was already on drugs at 210, I'm not exactly sure what it is he did (laughs) To elevate twice, right? Um, uh, I will say is it bears mention that um, you know some human subpopulations or major races uh, uh, tend to have a, some fraction of the individuals really freaky genetics. There are people in West Africa or West African ancestry, a lot of whom are African American, who have genetics for muscle building and shape and leanness that are just on a completely different level. Is normally people just wouldn't be able to process. Um, we have every reason to believe that Ronnie Coleman was stripped lean at roughly 215 to 220 pounds. Ronnie Coleman won the team universe, by the way, I believe. Uh, so I believe I think he also turned pro drug-free. Um, and I think Ronnie Coleman deadlifted like 700 drug-free and stuff like that. Um, and you say, well, that's crazy. How could he be 215 drug-free at 511? Well, when he took all the drugs in the world, he ended up stepping on stage at 296 years later. So, you know, that's the deal, right? So there's a lot of people like... This is one of the funny sort of quote-unquote debates that I won on Facebook. This is a hilarious discussion. Um, So Jared Feather, my very good friend and former Mm -hmm. student, um, one of the shows he did, and he was very, very, very drug-free, took a picture of him, and he was on stage at 174 pounds, 176 or something. And Jared has unbelievable genetics. He just looks amazing. And some guys, and I said, like, this is uh, uh, my student and friend, Jared, and he's natural. And I had guys messaging me saying, like, Doc, Come on, don't be naive. And I was like, you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) So the thing is, with somebody like Jared, uh, they were like, this guy has to be on drugs. And I was like, let's play this out. Um, How much, how big is Big Rain 
And they're like, well, he's 315 on stage. I'm like, mm-hmm. And how much do you think people get out of drugs? Like, how much do you think a big Rainey who's drug-free, who had trained for 10 years, could have been? And they were like, gee, I don't know, like 225 to 245, like lean on stage? Because, you know, 315 is a world away from that, right? And I'm like, oh, I agree with you. So then how come Big Rainey gets to be 235 pounds lean, but Jared Feather is 175 and he's for sure on drugs? <laughs> and there's just no response. I believe that person physically didn't respond anymore because it was like, you're an idiot. You never thought this through. Uh, this is something that Greg Knuckles and I have been going on about. Greg mostly on the strength side and me on the body composition side. Human genetic variation is unbelievable. When you have 7 billion people, the outliers are straight up not understandable. Genetic outliers for muscularity and leanness are higher than average people can accomplish with every drug. I'll repeat that. Genetic outliers, naturally trained with muscularity and leanness, are higher than the average gear response thrown in the kitchen sink at your body. What I mean is, there are people who are reasonable height, you know, meter 80 or so, can be over 200 pounds, right, uh, over 90 kilos, with striated glutes, completely drug-free. Those people are real, and they compete in, drug, in natural body. If you were to come to me weighing 65, 70 kilos, and you had trained for a while drug-free, and you wanted every steroid in the book and every fucking drug, could I guarantee you that we would have you on stage at over 200 pounds uh, in 95 kilos with striated glutes? Absolutely not. I'd be like, that would be really, really impressive. So there's a shitload of people that throw the entire kitchen sink that would end up on, striated, uh, on stage with striated glutes at 80 kilos. And then they would look at everyone around them and say, if you're 81.5 kilos with lean uh, physique, you must be on drugs. And, and the short answer is no. There's tons, literally thousands of people that are genetic variants that are just naturally better than you. And to most of those people, if and when they hop on gear, they leave you behind completely. So um, one thing that I – a misgiving I had early with it is quote-unquote evidence-based community was that a lot of the people speaking on behalf of the community were people that did not have amazing genetics, but they competed in bodybuilding and drug-free bodybuilding. And they thought they were the representatives of what drug-free lifter bodybuilders could accomplish. But when you looked at their competitive histories, they weren't the ones winning the shows. Other people were winning the shows, and these people were 200 pounds on stage drug-free. And you're like, oh, hold on a second. Who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> He's also drug-free, right? And I'm like, yeah. I was like, well, I thought you said that anything beyond 165 lean is not possible drug-free. We're like, well, that's, that's the biggest I've got. Well, maybe you just suck, you know? Like, uh, mm-hmm. So it's one of these things we have to keep in mind that genetic variation is super powerful. This is much more applicable uh, even to strength than it is to hypertrophy. Um, I have every reason to believe that Ray Williams is lifetime drug-free. Think about that. Squatting almost 500 kilos. There's no reason to think he's, he's, he's passed every drug test he's ever given. Passing the uh, the USADA drug test is very, very hard. He would have to be in, in cahoots with a lot of people that are... If you look at the way he trains, uh, no offense, uh, it's not the most advanced shit in the world, and no offense, Matt, because the basics work. Um, you look at the way he eats, it's good food, regularly. His protocol for beating a drug test would have to be this monumentally worlds above any of that shit. And I, get, I, I promise him it's not. The smart money is he's drug-free, which, which puts anyone who has benched 400 pounds and decides to run trend in, in some bit of shame. And, and it shouldn't unless they're competing in a drug-free federation. And then it should put them in a world of shame, right? So how can you tell if someone's natty or not? There are some telltale signs, but not enough to go on. Uh, one way you can tell that if you've been around drugs for a long time, sometimes skin quality will tip you off. When people who are on a lot of gear train, they become red. Like they don't sometimes walk around a little red, but when they train and they get a pump, they're, they physically redden, right? Uh, when I was training with Jared Feather back in the day, he looked like he was on every drug in the world and everyone was shocking. But when you like, the first time Broderick ever met Jared, he just started laughing. He's like, his skin is like pale, like a fucking baby's. This is ridiculous. He, Broderick goes, I have no idea why anyone ever thought Jared was was, was on drugs. And, uh, you know, Broderick has been around, Jesus Christ, more people than he could, you know, whack a stick at on drugs. So he knows that look really well. But it's a look natty people don't know. So to them, anyone who's lean and big is on drugs. But uh, if you've been around drugs a long time, you've been on them yourself, you can look at someone 
And you can be like, that guy's fucking natural shit. And if he's on drugs, it's nothing that works a lot. <laughs> and then you can look at other guys, and some people be like, oh, he's just big for natural. Like, mm, I don't know, man. That's interesting red tone to his skin, right? Uh, so on and so forth. So um, other than that, there's really aren't, there are no telltale signs. And, and guys, forgive me for waxing philosophical. Let me ask you another question. Outside of sport governing bodies who need to be testing an athlete, who the fuck gives a shit? Exactly. Who gives a fuck? The person you follow on Instagram, are they natural or not? Well, let's play this out. Let's say you follow them for motivation and inspiration. And you say, man, if they're not natural, then I can't look up to them because they're, they're cheating. Or like, oh, they don't compete in a sport. They're not cheating. Like, okay, well, these are not sustainable. These are not attainable results. Hey, dickhole, maybe they have genetics 10 times better than yours. And if they're on Instagram and they're a celebrity, they probably do. These were never attainable results to you. You were lying yourself from day one, right? People have this idea that, well, because they're not drug-free, I can look like this too. What the fuck? Are you out of your fucking mind? You, almost, you know, hey, uh, you know, Martina Nevertilova or whatever, a tennis player shit, she's drug-free. I, I guarantee you that. You're going to be as good at tennis as her? Are you out of your fucking mind? She can beat you with her eyes closed at age 65. Like, it's, it's a non-starter. So people will say shit like that, that this, for lack of a better term, and I'm sorry for separating this phrase, just haven't thought it through. They just fucking haven't. And it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things where there's an obsession with Natty or not exclusively by people who don't use and are looking for crutches and looking for hope and looking for motivation in the wrong places. You want to look for motivation and hope? Look to yourself and your work effort. Repeat the same effective processes. Monitor your own training. And when you look up to people, look up to them for their valuable intellectual contributions and their process of improving their physique no matter where they started. John Meadows is a great example of someone – John Meadows doesn't claim to be the most scientific guy, although he's on the money on most shit. John Meadows is a guy who's just a fucking good person who trains pretty fucking smart, eats pretty smart, and just works his ass off and is nothing but good vibes for this world. You want to follow someone who motivates you? John Meadows. Is John Meadows drug-free? He's never fucking claimed to be drug-free. You feel me? You can read between the lines on that shit. Who cares? I can give you 20 Instagram drug-free, legit celebrities you should never follow because they're not as good of a person. You have nothing to learn from them like you could from John Meadows. And so it goes. And there's a ton of drug-free people that are amazing. Jeff uh, Nippard is an awesome guy, right? I, I interacted with Jeff like maybe three times in my life. All the interactions are great. Everything I've ever seen about him is great. He's just a fucking awesome person. He's drug-free as the day he was born. Super. But there's a ton of drug-free people that are pure scum that you should never follow because they're fucking full of fucking dog shit. You know, there's all these fucking scammers out there with these, these bullshit plans and, 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 and these, you know, half-baked schemes and they're, they're natural and they're like, you can attain this physique. Like, great. Fuck you. You're, you're a dick, right? Like, I have nothing to learn from you. Like, I don't know, Mike Chang or whatever, a six-pack shortcuts guy. I guarantee you he's drug-free. I'm not trying to follow a goddamn thing he says. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where it's an interesting curiosity, but, it, you know, there's no resolution to it, to seeing if someone's drug-free or not. That's, that's very clear. And at the end of the day, it does doesn't fucking matter for any reasonable, serviceable purpose that you can take with you as someone who looks up to other lifters. Let me know yeah, if I'm wrong I, on that. I don't know. No, I think it just comes down to how fallible we are. Like, look, look at someone like Jeff Side. Like, God damn it, he is so pretty. Look at his hair. Look at his body. Look at his hot girlfriend. Look at the car he's driving. At least it feels good to imagine that at night he's sneakily in his bathroom stabbing some needle into his ass at least that makes me feel better i yeah. think it just comes down to that so yeah you, you yeah, maybe and you know if that makes you feel better holy shit you need many years of therapy you know? <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um so uh i just want to throw my final philosophical question sorry andre i don't want to take the spotlight here but we just had a really awesome mini conversation before we got on air and i just want you mike to reiterate what you began saying but we started recording then which is you know, it's interesting when people say that, you know, why would anybody get on drugs? Like, I just can't understand the motivation. Like, if you're not planning on competing and reaching the highest levels of success as a competitive physique athlete or something, why would you do this? And it's like, to me, 
it's sort of the same reason as why we take creatine or why we take whey protein or why you would buy the training program template from Renaissance Periodization or John Meadows or whoever, because this is your hobby, you're passionate about it, and you want to get, get the most out of it. Like, really, the only difference is, is that we attach this label to it as, you know, these are drugs, and it kind of flips that black and white thinking in people's heads, and also the side effects and things like that, which, of course, are counter indications. But how do you think about this, um, this question of why would someone do this? Yeah. Well, sort of, sort of paraphrase you earlier, you know, a lot of us are quite fallible, and uh, some you can imagine people doing things for not the best reasons and not pretend to be opaque to why they're doing it. Like, you can say, well, I don't understand why someone would punch someone in the face after an altercation in a bar. Like, yeah, but no one's ever really pissed you off much. Like, you know, debating Lyle McDonald, like if he was in front of me, it would take the world for me to not choke him to death. You know, like I can I understand like why you would feel like that about someone. People piss you off, right? So you could say, I understand why someone would feel like this, but I think it's a bad decision. Totally agreed. You know, I would never harm anyone. I was, right, I would get into street fights and I think it's a stupid idea to punch someone in a club. Really stupid idea. But I see where they're coming from. I see I can relate, you know, at, at some base level. So, so that's first of all to be said. But then on a, on, a, on a higher level, you can say, well, granted that you can relate, you still can't see how they went through with the decision, which is totally valid. But to that end, I think the maybe more salient critique is the seriousness of the pharmacological intervention should at the very least approximately mirror the seriousness of someone's commitment to lifting muscle and sport and growth. What I mean by that is the following. If you're really passionate about fitness, if you're put in years and months and meals and workouts and time, you really want to see your body evolve to the next level, and drugs happen to be legal in your country of residence, and you're not cheating at sport with them, and you're being responsible about your health, then it just makes sense that this is another technological tool you're going to apply to yourself to get more of what you want, especially if you're very well aware of the trade-offs and the costs and the downsides. Now, if you're not, you're a fucking idiot. But if you are, it's a rational tool. People drive fast on the freeway. That's way more dangerous than drugs, but they do it. Sometimes it's worth the rush to within the speed limit, make it to your daughter's graduation versus staying 10 under the speed limit and missing it and something like that. You know, these are trade-offs we make all the time. At least the drugs don't endanger anybody else. Speeding on the freeway does. So uh, what is confusing is when the pharmacological intervention is not concomitant whatsoever with athlete seriousness. What I mean is this. Someone trains for a month and they're like, all right, what drug should I take? And you're like, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, these trade-offs are really gnarly. Are you sure this is worth it? And they can say they're sure without being sure. They can just lie. And I think that's where the problem comes, and that's where that critique comes, where some people really do things thoughtlessly. If you put a lot of thought into it, you'll probably realize that this kind of crazy shit to put your body through, putting drugs into your body, which is always serious, maybe isn't worth the effort if you, first of all, aren't super serious about your hobby, and second of all, aren't um, willing to at least let the hobby go until it gets more serious to where you couldn't just have a change something naturally. Let me give you a really shitty analogy. If you like uh, spend a day in the park with a friend drawing paintings and some canvas, and then the next week you're like, hey, I'm going to enroll in art school, your friend would be like, what, what the fuck? That's like $50,000 a year. What's wrong with you? And you're like, yeah, I, I loved it. I love art. I really want to get good at this shit. You just be like, you know, that is a considerable investment for something you don't even know if you'll keep doing. And also you still suck at it. And also you could just get wildly better practicing on your own at no cost for the next 10 years, right? That's the analogy to like asking for your first cycle after a month of lifting weights, you know, house music in your European gym or something like that. Like, why not just keep being natty and get these awesome gains with no downsides? And if, but gee, if you really turn out to be, a, after 10 years, a phenomenal breakthrough artist and you really want to take your skills to the next level, time to pay money for art school. 
But just after a month of, or after an afternoon of drawing, if you want to go into art school, that's weird. And if after a month of lifting, you want to buy every drug on the market, that's weird. It might not be the wrong choice. Listen, you might be that person to whom it actually, you have that disposable income. And art school is this beautiful experience, and it really got you your start, and it turns out you were, in fact, gifted. You stuck with it after art school, and then you're now a, a Renaissance painter, and everyone looks to buy your work, and you sell for millions. That, that can happen after a month. You know, people do that with music. Like, some people pick up a fucking guitar, and they turn into Jimi Hendrix in a month, and all of a sudden, thank God they did, right? And they're like, I'm going all in. And someone's like, mm, maybe you shouldn't, but they did, and it worked. But maybe that won't happen, right? And 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 uh, it's, uh, you know, if, if that happens, sweet. So sometimes it works out. But... The skepticism there is a lot of times it doesn't work out. So especially with drugs, if you haven't at least invested some modicum of seriousness into it, um, your calculation of whether or not it's worth it just might be lacking a huge amount of information. So what I would say is if you're ever unsure about if you want to use and you think you want to use but you're not sure, just keep training and dieting and getting these awesome natural gains. Because I will tell you what's really sweet. If you play it right, and again, drugs are legal in your country of residence, you're not cheating for sport, and you're, you're monitoring your health. If you have a huge natural base when you start drugs, you're going to subject your body to that much less health downside. The drugs are going to get you that much more benefit, and you're going to look cool right away. If you start drugs really early, to get to that eventual same goal of being super jacked and lean, you'll have to put your body through way more health effects, way more psychological effects, way more money because the drugs are not free, way more psychological, super fucked up shit. They're going to degrade your health. They're going to degrade your brain structure. Everything bad you're going to get not for free. And for most of that time, people are still going to think you're drug-free because you still look pathetic. Like when you weigh 70 kilos and you're, you know, a meter 90 and you're like, I'm on drugs, I'm on trend. Like I've had a guy tell me that before. He was 165 pounds. He was like, yeah, I'm running trend. It took me everything not to laugh. I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Like a guy, like the thing is, I think he'd lifted for many years and that's as far as he got. And then he ran trend. And I was just like, gee, guy, you know, if you weigh this much, maybe, maybe it's just not worth it. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe to him it was maybe in his soul. He wanted to push his human body as far as, as far as possible, and he was completely rational with the trade-offs and stuff like that. He probably wasn't. If he was, he has every one of my blessings, but I'm skeptical. So I think there's that nuance there, right, where um, I think it's absolutely an awesome thing, and I can totally relate to anyone that takes any drug for any reason, because drugs do good things. They do. That's why people take drugs. That's what they didn't tell you in drug education back when you were in fifth grade. Like, they say, like, you know, marijuana is bad for these reasons. And then you smoke marijuana, and you're like, man, they forgot to tell me being high is awesome. <laughs> they just sort of left that out, right? Like, if you if you look at, like, a high school manual of, like, you know, why not to do steroids, they didn't tell you the part about, like, oh, yeah, by the way, they add slabs of muscle and make you sweet at sports. Like, oh, oops, right? So that's why people take them. It's very reasonable to understand. But the trade-offs and consequences, that's where the reasonability of understanding someone tends to degrade. And sometimes people make really interesting choices very prematurely with not enough information. So what I think is... I think you should, if if they're legal in your country, take all the drugs you want, but you have to think it through. If you don't, you have none of my blessings and none of my respect. I respect you as a person, and I will grant you every civil right that you are are deemed, uh, but but I will not respect you as an individual. And I have actually, I don't want to say ended friendships, I've curtailed interactions with people who started gear way too early for the wrong reasons. I just told them, I just, I think, I think you're a fucking idiot, and, you know, I'll talk to you later, and I just don't talk to them, because I, I think a lot of people make the wrong fucking choices, but... That's what it is. I just want to add one, one I guess, related experience, which kind of highlights your point, which was not about steroids, but it was similarly frustrating. So I have a 17-year-old uh, girl at my gym who has, I think, great genetics. Um, she has a great structure for bodybuilding, and she asked me my thoughts about her competing. And I said to her what I thought would be true, which is that she is too young to compete, first of all. Absolutely. And two, she doesn't have the muscle mass to compete. And... Uh, 
told her, hey, if you want to compete, like take more, two more, three more years, put some muscle. Uh, by the time you're 20, 21, you can think about competing if you still like. And her comeback was basically, well, I know a ton of 17 year olds who have done it. And I said to her the same thing, just because others have done it, that doesn't mean it's a, a responsible thing to do. I'm, I'm sure they did, but that's not my point. I was just telling you what's best for you long term. And with that, you can do whatever you like. So. Yeah, she's definitely 17, uh, you know, by the way that interaction went. <laughs> like, there's no mistaking teenage logic there, which is a complete lack of logic. So, yeah, it's funny. Like, well, a lot of other people have done it. Sweet. You know, you're, I'm sure you know a lot of dumbass people, just like yourself. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right. Guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, Mike, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for all the insights. I definitely learned uh, a ton of stuff. Yeah. This is not something I know a lot about. So, um, yeah, thank you for the free education here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was educational for us, and hopefully it will be for our listeners too. I hope so. Hopefully someone stumbles upon this and maybe not Boston Lloyd, and they can do things right <laughs> instead of the wrongest possible way. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. So, Mike, do you want to let people know where uh, they can find you, your work, resources, all that stuff? Yeah, in this context, uh, don't worry about it. What I would direct people to is uh, Broderick Chavez, Team Evil GSP, um, or Evil GSP on Instagram, and Broderick Chavez on Facebook. And just Google that name, you'll be linked. Uh, this is a gentleman whose uh, line of work is in consulting people and making choices just like the ones we described. He's one of the smartest people I know and much more qualified than myself to be speaking on all these things. And uh, if you want further insights, and especially if you're interested in, if you live in a country like the United Kingdom and it's legal for you to do these things, then um, and you want someone to guide you along in your efforts, then potentially he could be a resource for you. So I would I would be highly, uh, that's what I want to end on is referencing him because I don't do any of this stuff. I'm I'm a dilettante as far as this is concerned. Uh, so if you ask me about if you message me asking me about drugs, I will tell you I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about because Broderick does. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this interview with Dr. Isratel and my buddy Sotak Andre. And I hope you enjoy this one. If you're new to this whole platform, then I encourage you to look through my older videos and different episodes. I think you will find some useful gems about fat loss and building muscle and just transforming yourself into an upgraded version of your current self in the most enjoyable, practical and efficient way possible. I have countless interviews already with some of the brightest minds in the fitness world. I interviewed Dr. Mike Isratel beforehand like four times, Eric Helms as well like four or five times, Menno Henselmans, Lyle McDonald, James Krieger, and just a lot of these guys. And Sotak Andre has been on my channel a few times as well. So yeah, check out all of these resources and feel free to browse through. And of course, subscribe for future content like this as well, because every week something like this is going to drop, sometimes two or three videos or episodes that are equally useful in my opinion so yeah definitely do not hesitate to binge watch or listen to all of these things and in case you don't know how to find all of these in audio format on various podcasting platforms it is the sustainable self-development podcast which you can find on soundcloud and on basically all podcasting platforms on Spotify as well, I'm pretty sure. And damn, I almost forgot. If you're not familiar with that, we have an awesome Facebook group on Facebook called Sustainable Self-Development, shocker. And we have over 2,000 members, almost 3,000 actually. So if you want to join an awesome community where we are discussing topics like what we talked about today, then definitely join that one as well. So yeah, that's all I wanted to mention for the end of this episode. And with that, see you next time.